Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology. This is Felipe Santos, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we're going to be talking about emotions and protest. And for this, we have here with us Professor James Jasper from the City University of New York, who just published a book with the University of Chicago Press called The Emotions of Protest. Uh, Jim, welcome to the New Books Network. We're very happy to having you with us today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Felipe. So just to, to start the interview, I would like to ask you to uh, tell us a bit about yourself. So what you're working, uh, where you're working now and what you've been, uh, what has been your, your path until uh, this moment? Sure. Well, you may know I started off really doing comparative politics, even though I was a sociologist at Berkeley. I did comparative policy, nuclear energy policy for my dissertation. And so I think my, my career has been one long effort to, to break down the big variables, the big comparative chunks that we study in comparative politics and get down farther and farther to the micro level. And I guess uh, emotions are about as micro as you can get. So uh, it's been a very long, slow process. Um, I, it's not as though I don't believe there are big political structures out there. But I think we do a better job as sociologists explaining things when we, we break those down into very small bits and, and uh, emotions and or feeling, thinking processes, as I call them, are about the, as small as we can get in sociology. And I was wondering, how, how did you come to the idea of, uh, of writing this book? Uh, I mean, uh... yeah. well, part of it um, is that I was never really very well trained in the sociology of social movements. When I was at Berkeley in the early 80s, uh, the, the social movements course was taught by William Kornhauser, who, uh, you know, as a mass society theorist, just wasn't that interesting to me. So I never really took a course in social movements or studied it formally. And so when I did start reading the literature on social movements, uh, this would be, I guess, in the late 80s when I got to New York, I was kind of surprised that there was nothing in the literature about emotions, very little about culture at all. These kinds of things seemed obvious to me, having participated in some movements and then as, as I went out and interviewed uh, animal rights activists at the time. And so I began to wonder, well, how could they have missed this? And so I began to sort of look around in different places to find bits of theory about sociology of emotions uh, that I could stick in. It was, it was a pretty eclectic mix at first. Um, I guess it still is. But I've been working on it now for over 20 years. So uh, it's, it feels good to get this book uh, about that topic out finally. And in the book, you you mentioned your objective that I don't know if it's uh, like 100% covering the book or or not. You, you might also clarify that about building a theory of action, right? So I was wondering whether you could explain us a bit what this theory of action is and also whether it is possible to integrate it with uh, these more structural arguments uh, such as, you know, the ones included in the political process approaches, which uh, you have heavily criticized in the past, actually. Um, yeah, I think um, that there's been a shift, at least in the field of social movements, and I think more broadly in sociology, from uh, a focus on the big structures like capitalism and the state and toward a more, uh, I would say, I, I call it in the book, a, a sort of softer or sort of even a queer revolution in social movement theory, where we look at action from the view of the actor and not, uh, not derive it from the big structures, the constraints surrounding it. Um, so we look at uh, people's views of the world, how they make decisions, 
uh, how they grapple with strategic trade-offs, how they feel about all of this, how they feel about each other, so that we we really get the the protesters' own point of view in there more. So then how do you relate this back to big structures? Well, um, I think the way to do it is you work through these long chains of interactions, uh, how people respond to this, how they feel about that, what do they then do? How do other players then react to them? And so you get these long interactive chains in politics. And I think it's by tracing those through that we get uh, some sense of how strategic arenas are created in the first place, how policies and laws are laid down, what, when do social movements succeed and when do they fail. Um, it's a, those chains can be pretty long, so it's pretty hard work, but I don't see any other way to really fully understand the big outcomes except through these very small things, through the micro interactions. And then I was wondering, like trying to focus more on these uh, micro interactions that you're speaking about. So could you please g give me a grasp about how are how are emotions uh, relevant for, for politics and how do they influence participation in protest? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, first of all, I think that's that's the part of emotions that has been studied the most, how they motivate people either to participate or not to participate. And people like Bert Klandermans and Jacqueline von Stecklenburg have done a great job of understanding why someone will come to yet another protest or why they stop going to protests. Are they, are they outraged? Are they, um, do they feel attached to a group that they feel has been uh, disrespected in some way? But emotions go far beyond simple participation. Uh, they, they are what provide our, the goals for our action to start with, what we care about in the world. They provide our network attachments to other people. So there's been a lot of work about the importance of social networks in determining who goes to a protest and who does not. Well, uh, that's fine, but it's a very mechanistic view. What happens in those networks? Well, people feel positively toward each other. They have affective bonds that really draw them to other people, make them want to go along to the protest and so on. So every aspect, I think, of uh, the, the kinds of factors we look at in the field of social movements, they're all, they're, there are emotions behind each one. So a political opportunity structure. Well, political opportunity structure might be the fear of a dictator and his decision to flee or his decision to let loose the army and, uh, and repress protesters. Uh, those are his emotions that are being very, that are very salient and influential there. Uh, the police themselves, the armies uh, have, mm -hmm. have emotions. Do they, do they fear the, the ruler more? Do they, are they ashamed of their actions and they might back off and, and not repress So I think every aspect uh, in the field of, of protest and movements has some emotional underpinning because all human action has emotions in it. Uh, we're, we're, we monitor what we're doing. We get feedback from the world through emotions. We craft our own projects our, and the direction of our action through emotions. So uh, they're everywhere. Sometimes they're a little subtle. Sometimes they're very obvious. Uh, the field, I think, has focused too much on the very dramatic emotions, uh, displays of anger and outrage. We have focused a little, uh, too, a little less on the, mm -hmm. the more subtle emotions, such as simply a feeling of comfort with other, certain other people, liking, disliking, our, our long-term hatreds and loves and so on. I think we need to bring those together to get a real theory of action. And then in order to also to breach this kind of... Uh divide that you were speaking about now between like the more emotional part and the more kind of uh well what you call the calculating brain part uh in like in, uh, in the study of social movements you speak about this concept of uh feeling thinking processes so i was wondering if you could explain us a bit what you mean by that so we can get uh deeper into the book after this great yes I think one of the problems is that we've, for, for a couple thousand years in Western philosophy, we've been given this picture that 
You have the, the brain that thinks, that calculates in a very abstract way. And then you have the heart, the body that's full of the gut, that's full of emotions, and they're sort of unthinking. And we can either follow the calculating brain or we can be taken over by uh, our passions. And that's a, a contrast, a dichotomy that really is just not very useful. It's been used in political ways throughout, uh, really throughout human history to say, well, certain groups have the brains and other groups are more like animals following instincts and emotions. And uh, it's the ones with the brains who should rule society. Um, so they've been used in, in really terrible ways for a long time that dichotomy has. So I want to get beyond that. And so I, I put feeling thinking together. Because if you don't, if you talk about feeling and thinking, you're already admitting that those are two distinct things. Whereas in fact, both as we think and as we formulate cognitions, as we articulate decisions, you know, the more, the more cognitive processes and the more apparently emotional processes when we strike out in anger, when we run away, when we uh, fall in love, in fact, behind both sides, there are dozens, maybe hundreds of feeling thinking processes. There are all sorts of ways in which we process information. We, we orient our bodies to other people's bodies. We get excited when we're out in a protest march or when we're watching a, a football match and everybody cheers. So we, we take in a lot of information that we're really not even consciously aware of. And, and, so those mm -hmm. those are sort of the raw components of raw materials for both emotions and thoughts. And I'm not saying that they're exactly the same thing, but they but thoughts and feelings come out of the same material. So there's a huge overlap between them. So even sitting and doing a mathematical solving a mathematical proof or puzzle or something. Part of our motivation, part of how we do that is the excitement of uh, trying, to, trying to solve it. Um, we, we have a feeling at the end of deep satisfaction. Uh, we might want to go tell our friends that we've done this. So there are emotions even in sort of the paradigm of uh, rational, cognitive, abstract thinking. And then once you kind of clarify this concept, um... We, we have here also a very interesting uh, categorization of emotions, right? That it's also, I understand, an attempt of uh, solving this issue that you were uh, having with uh, people who previously studied emotions about this mechanistic uh, approach. Um, so I was wondering if before uh, we go into each of these five categories, you could briefly uh, present them and explain also very shortly what you mean by each of them. Sure. Um, let me start with the categories, the types of emotions that are very short run. Uh, and I'll start with, with reflex, what I call reflex emotions, because those are the kinds of emotions that people have taken as the paradigm of emotions. It's really anger and fear and a couple others like sudden joy or disappointment, emotions that are very visible on the face, really. And there's a ton of surprise in them. That's why they're visible to other people uh, in their facial expressions. And, be, and, and I think anger and fear are the ones that um, have the most potential to lead us to do things we later regret. Um, uh, we, we strike out in anger, or we run away, or we're paralyzed in ways that uh, if we had more time to think about it, we might have acted differently. So there's, there's a potential there that uh, that the traditional thinking has decided is irrationality. Now, mm -hmm. I don't think irrationality is the best word. It's natural to be afraid. It's natural to be angry. Uh, to me, irrationality is the inability to learn from our mistakes. But be that as it may, uh, so reflex emotions are very short term. Um, they, uh, they arise very quickly when we get new information. Uh, they often lead to some kind of action. So again, those are the, have been the paradigm for emotions. But let's, let's jump to the other end. There are very long-run emotional commitments that we have. We have 
for example, moral commitments. We, we feel pride, we feel shame, guilt, embarrassment at, at certain kinds of actions. And these sorts of emotions can lead us to act in better or worse ways, uh, but they are, they are feelings about what is right and what is wrong, what we approve of or disapprove of, that really are, are fairly permanent. Uh, once, as we, when we're younger, they develop. Once we're in our 20s, usually we have them for the rest of our lives. We may be disappointed. Mm-hmm. We may change our mind about something. But for the most part, what, what, the, our, what moral commitments we have uh, are, are pretty, pretty long run. And, and people like to talk about morality. Morality is very important. But the only way that morality moves us is be, how we feel about it, how we feel about what, how good it mm-hmm. feels to do the right thing. Uh, that it feels bad to do the wrong thing. So morality motivates us through emotions. So there you have a very long run set of emotions versus the short run reflex emotions. Let me add at the long run end also uh, what I call affective loyalties, affective commitments. These are feelings about particular other people or about groups, imagined communities, uh, they may be feelings about places or about ideas. So there, there are things like love and hate, respect, uh, disrespect, trust and mistrust, uh, liking and just feeling comfortable in a place or with people versus feeling uncomfortable or disliking them. So they all have positive and negative um, versions. And these are incredibly important in politics because they... They influence uh, who we trust to give us information. They can motivate us to enlist, to march off to war. Uh, Our solidarities with other human groups are Mm -hmm. a major part of of what we are, who we see as in-groups and who we see as out-groups. Those are all emotional factors that, again, are fairly permanent. They, They may change. They can change suddenly. For example, if we feel betrayed by our group or by another person, love can flip to hate. But for the most part, these are pretty long-term emotions that orient us in the world. And so they, too, are extremely different from uh, reflex fear and reflex anger. Uh, I have a couple other categories as well, but uh, let me stop there just with that contrast between the short run and the long run. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then uh, going uh, starting with uh, this uh, very short um, run emotions, I-, I wanted to to speak with you about this category that you call uh, urges, which I found very interesting because that's something that uh, is very important for for politics and for participation in protest. But we haven't paid much attention from the side of uh, of the academy, so. I was wondering if you could uh, speak about them a bit and also uh, develop on how they affect this uh, participation in politics. Sure. Uh, urges are like reflex emotions in that they tend to be short term. They're different in that they tend to um, maybe arise gradually but be extinguished quickly. So they're things like simply um, uh, being hungry, being fatigued. Uh, needing to go to the bathroom, uh, needing to, they're, 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 they are bodily, uh, deeply bodily urges that distract us from other kinds of activities until we take care of those urges. Uh, lust is another example. We can be highly distracted when we are, we're attracted to, to somebody we're with. So these are um, the kinds of things that when people organize protests, they take them into account. Very often, they try to find ways to keep people warm, to keep people hydrated. Uh, they provide toilets along a march route, all sorts of things. Because one, if an urge becomes strong enough, it can take you away from the collective project. You you wander off the the protest route, the march route, to find a bathroom or to get a cup of coffee, um, or to get a beer. You might want to go uh, have a drink. Uh, uh, addictions and substance uh, use of substances are urges that can be quite overpowering. 
as well. So yeah, we forget about all these things when we write about protests, partly because I think scholars of social movements really like writing about the ideas of a protest movement and whether they're good or bad and how compelling they are. But these apparently mundane details can be quite important, um, especially especially addictions and how we think about addictions, but also how they how they affect our actions. So it's another category of emotion that has a has a big impact on on our actions, but we haven't really thought it through that way that, that much. Um, it gets us into the territory, say, of pain is a, is a very strong urge, or, or the the urge to stop pain, really. Uh, and so the use of torture against a lot of protesters in different parts of the world, strong forms of torture or even milder forms of, of discomfort uh, are ways to uh, get people to drop out of participation. There are ways to uh, get them to cough up information that uh, can be used against a movement or against a, a revolutionary group. So, uh, these uh, are there along with a bunch of other kinds of emotions. We, it, we really need to pay attention to them when they're important and, and no, notice them. So my hope in this book is uh, just by labeling these various processes, these various feeling thinking processes, uh, scholars will pay more attention to them. They will notice them when they're happening right in front of them. They will make us better observers. And also when we uh, think about urges, normally we, we think them about these uh, very sudden emotions that are generally disrupted. So they have to be planned for, but they appear in the moment. But then you also speak about this strategic use of urges when you mention, when you make this discussion about hunger strikes, right? So how, how are urges used also in a strategic way for, for social movements? Yeah. Right. The, uh, it, it, I, I think that's a case in which our own bodies are the only strategic resource we have. So if it's a case, uh, say, in prisons, where someone else is responsible for our health and well-being, um, they can, on the one hand, they can use pain and, and, and as I said before, torture to make us comply to their, with their demands. On the other we can have hunger strikes that um, uh, sort of take back some of that control over our own bodies. We use that pain and discomfort uh, against them. Now, this depends on a lot of things. It depends on there being an, an audience outside the prison, outside the, the situation that's watching what happens to us in, in these hunger strikes. But it's a, it's a battle for control over our, our bodies. And uh, hunger strikes can be quite powerful. Uh, they uh, they they're very effective. They're it's it's hard to do them. I've never tried myself, and um, I think it must be excruciating. But they they really attract media attention, and uh, they usually get some kind of reaction from authorities. So again, uh, our bodies are not just uh, neutral tools for action, but they can become the site of action as well. And um, the same that you were speaking, that uh, organizers normally take uh, urges into account uh, when they, they plan a protest or other kinds of action. Uh, also, when we think about reflex emotions, uh, you also touch uh, upon this management of emotions, right? This concept that uh, Goodwin has been working on as well. Um, so could you please explain us uh, how, how is like this emotion management work also when, in, with regards to reflex emotions? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Sure. Well, there, there are a lot of different ways to manage emotions. And um, one, one vision of that that I would uh, want to avoid is uh, the notion of manipulation of emotions, because there was an older view. The older view of emotions as irrational also thought it could be manipulated. So um, crowd theory and mass society theory thought, well, uh, demagogues, come and manipulate the emotions of crowds in these irrational ways. And, and they almost hypnotize crowds and can make them do whatever they want so that one person is manipulating a lot of others. 
That, I think, does not happen very often. Um, and I, I say that even in the, the era of Donald J. Trump, and we can come back to that. Um, what often happens is people manage their own emotions very often so that um, I go to a protest rally uh, because I know that at that rally, I'm going to feel more angry. I'm going to feel more indignant. Uh, I'm going to I'm working on my own emotions in a way. I'm, I want to produce that anger because I know it's going to keep me going in politics for a while longer. So I put myself in a situation in order to feel certain things that I know will energize me, will motivate me. So it's often a kind of manipulation of our own situation in order to feel emotions. Now, in between those two extremes of the demagogue and the, the, the self-management, there are mm-hmm. leaders, uh, organizers of active a- activities um, do have some awareness of what kinds of props, what kinds of rhetoric will make us more angry, will, um, will put us in a good mood, what kind, how often should you have protest marches, for example, how often should you have meetings? They want to, they, they keep us, um, angry enough to come back, but also, um, satisfied, proud enough that we're actually, we actually feel some efficacy, some, some, uh, success, which also is necessary to keep going. So, uh, good organizers, I think, uh, are good partly because they understand people's emotions and they help us, uh, find places in order that we, that we will go in order to feel certain emotions. So, um, it's not like they're manipulating us. They're, in a way, helping us to manipulate ourselves. And then moving a bit more towards the uh, more long-term emotions that you speak about, then you, you also discuss a lot about moods, right? So what are moods and how do they affect uh, participation in, uh, yeah. in politics? They're a little different from most emotions in that they are not uh, directly about something. So whereas we have reflex emotions like we're angry at someone or about something or we're afraid of something, moods are more general. We're in a good mood or a bad mood. We're in a calm mood or an energized mood uh, without connecting it to specifics in the world around us. So we, they, they are uh, sort of medium term emotions, unlike anger, which can go away in a few minutes, perhaps, or uh, an affective bond with our to our nation, which lasts a lifetime. Moods have a biochemical basis, and the biochemistry tends to stay in our brains. Could be some hours, could be some days, maybe even a few weeks. Uh, so we take it from one setting to another. We go from one place to another with and, and take that mood with us. So moods are important in politics in the following way. They give us energy or, or take energy away for action. So if we're in a good mood, a confident mood, um, we think we can win. We think it's worth going out and protesting. Uh, we are more likely to do it. We're more likely to, to act. Uh, if we're in a bad mood, we feel resigned, we feel depressed, uh, we're less likely to do anything. We, this, it influences our assessment of, of how uh, our assessment of success. Uh, it's just not worth doing anything. It's not going to work anyway. If we're in a bad mood, um, it, it deflates our expectations and our energy for action. So a, a lot of what um, people in politics try to do strategically is to to inflate the moods of their the people on their side and to deflate the moods of, of the opposition. And also, I mean, one mood that you speak about that I think is very interesting is this one in which it's a very bad mood, but it gets so bad that it becomes something that leads to protest, right? That is what you call the nothing left to lose. Yeah, there are there are times when people really are are so are so frustrated. Perhaps they're grieving because loved ones have been stolen or killed, and they 
they really don't see any other way out. Uh, they might as well take risks. They might as well be violent. They might as well uh, do whatever it takes because they've, they've borne such costs already. They don't care about what other costs they, that the regime or the opponents might throw at them. So they become possibly reckless about their own lives and their own well-being. Uh, just because they're can be because they're so angry, it can be because they want revenge on the the authorities who've done something so horrendous. Um, so, you know, people who've lost a child, for example, or loved ones, uh, you know, just are so devastated that uh, they really have two choices: uh, paralysis and depression, or action and doing something to snap out of that depression. And it's not necessarily a conscious choice that they make. It's hard to sometimes choose that, especially if you're depressed. It's hard to choose not to be depressed. But some people do. And if they have the right contacts, and here's where networks are important, if they know somebody who is in the same situation or has had the same thing happen to them or has belongs to a group, um, an organization, they can do something. And often they are the most determined of activists because of that, because they have nothing left to lose. Mm -hmm. And then moving into uh, defective commitments that you were uh, briefly touching upon before, um, I was wondering, because you, you talk about them as, you know, like uh, you, you refer to love, you refer to, to belonging and, and so on. So I was wondering also, What is their relation to, to another very important concept, concept that you have been working on, not uh, in this book specifically, but more generally, that is collective identities? So how do they relate to each other? How are they different? Well, um, identities are an important, obviously an important concept in, in recent years. Uh, the social psychologists talk about in-groups versus out-groups so that you have both your own collective identity of groups that you identify with, but also have an identity that you impose on, on other, other players, other categories. These are really important because they, um, they provide a way of thinking about the world and whether, asking whether it's just or not that is really about um, a broader kind of justice. So rather than saying, well, I, something unfair has happened to me, I can think something unfair has happened to my entire group or my entire nation or my, my class or my, my gender. And so it, it adds a kind of um, moral grandeur to, the, to my cause. It's not just about me. It's nothing selfish. It's nothing self-interested. I'm doing this on behalf of all of us. So Those collective identities are really important, but they're not simply um, cognitive boundaries between us and them. They're not some logical way of, of dividing up the world. And you know, we, we don't just sit and say, well, men and women are different and men should do this and women should do that. We feel these identities. We feel um, comfortable with certain identities and uncomfortable with other identities. We trust people in our group. Uh, we respect them. We, at, at an extreme, we love them. We love our, you know, and the nation is a very common one uh, these days. Um, it's very easy for politicians to sort of remind us or to stoke up this love of the nation into this sort of nationalist fervor and suspicion of outsiders. And um, it, so there it's, again, it's full of, if identities, if collective identities are to have any influence on what we do, they are going to do that through emotions, through these feelings we have about ourselves mm -hmm. and others that we have to, we have to hate some outsider or mistrust them or, or fear them in some way. And that will cause us to act against them. Just uh, uh, noticing some difference uh, in how they look or in what they eat or something like that, that doesn't really draw us into action. We have to have the emotions there. We have to have, I think very often we have to have both certain fe positive feelings about our in-group and certain negative feelings about the out-group. And from these effective commitments, I, I think that there is one that you speak about, which has become really, uh, well, 
all of them are, but I think that like it has become really relevant for uh, social movements in the, the last days, which is solidarity, right? And we're um, thinking about like all these solidarity movements that have appeared in reaction to the refugee crisis, for example. And there is a recent uh, recent book edited by Donatella de la Porta on, on that matter. Uh, so I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate a bit more on this uh, specific effective commitment of solidarity. Well, that kind of solidarity is a sort of cosmopolitanism, I, I think, right? That um, we we try because of our moral commitments, because we believe in human rights, because we have an image of humanity as sharing certain basic rights or ba- basic traits or of humanity as equally capable of suffering in very similar ways. Because of that, more those moral emotions that we have, we then take that back and that we use that to rethink or refeel our affective commitments. So um, we challenge nationalism that way. We challenge uh, the mistreatment of foreigners or of immigrants. And we, we move the moral boundary of, of collective identity from the, nat- from the boundaries of the nation state to include all of humanity. And of course, this is what a lot of social movements have done. They've tried to move this the, the field of solidarity, the boundaries of solidarity, uh, you know, to include other other races, other sexual orientations, other uh, uh, other species. In the in the case of the animal rights movement, uh, mm-hmm. to sort of say, well, anybody who can can suffer. Anybody who can speak can stand up for their rights. Anybody who can uh, do any of these basic human things, they are deserving of our moral consideration. And so we do feel a broader solidarity. Now, in my own opinion, uh, this kind of very broad solidarity, the cosmopolitanism, uh, is something that we have to work at and we can't take for granted. And I think one of the big lessons of the last few years is how easy it is for politicians to come along and, um, and undermine that image and, and to encourage uh, people to fall back on narrower solidarity, solidarities of race and of nation, um, and to, to, uh, to exclude certain categories of humans as not quite human. This is the the standard way to demonize others to say, well, they're, you know, it used to be they're not r- rational enough. They're too emotional. Uh, now it could be, well, they just don't behave right. They, they don't have the right respect uh, for minorities and for liberal rights, and they don't have enough tolerance. It's sort of an ironic claim, but um, there are all sorts of ways in which we can other different groups. And it's, it's very easy for opportunistic politicians to go out and do that. And uh, I think for me, the, the important social movements of today are those that um, have a broader vision and have a language for, for making us, uh, for, for inspiring us, I would say, uh, in, that, in that broader, more cosmopolitan solidarity. And then moving into uh, the moral commitments, which... Uh, we spoke a bit about uh, at the beginning of the interview. There are two which I believe are especially interesting and also because of the interaction among them that uh, you're also mentioning in the book, which are shame and pride. So how, I mean, how are shame and pride uh, interacting together and how do, does this work for, for participation in protest? Yeah, this is an old idea that goes back to Charles Cooley, who said that uh, shame and pride are sort of the master emotions that, uh, that drive so- social life and, and action. Uh, we're, we're deeply driven to avoid shame, to, to do, we don't want to do things that are, are going to make us feel ashamed because that's so painful. And we are driven toward doing things that will make us proud because that's a very satisfying Feeling and uh, so it, it, it's it's true in I think across social life those those are very common emotional uh, drivers in the field of social movements. Um, you know, it feels very good to do the right thing, whatever we might think that right thing is. It, it feels really good. It's a 
It's a satisfaction that's very different from uh, sensual pleasures. It's very different from power. It's very different from making money. Doing the right thing is um, is an intense feeling uh, that um, we almost never regret later on, uh, even if there are costs to it. Once we've once we've done it, we're we're proud of ourselves. I, I think we're sometimes also a little relieved that we did the right thing rather than a more cowardly wrong thing or more selfish wrong thing. So. Uh, that kind of pride is a very important motivator in, in social movements, especially social movements that are not um, not obviously self-interested. Uh, so I think we're especially proud of ourselves for, for helping others, uh, for helping other species again, uh, for helping the environment, uh, for helping those perhaps who cannot help themselves. I think that's a deep source of pride. Uh, because mm-hmm. it's uh, it's not an obvious obligation very often. It sort of uh, comes like something we do on top of everything else we do. So um, we feel obligations to our family and our friends and neighbors. But when we take on obligations to people we don't even know, people around the, the world, some other part of the world, uh, they that that um, that makes us feel good in a way. Now. You know, there have been critiques of this kind of humanitarianism uh, in, in practical terms, but as a, as a moral feeling, I, I think it's a very powerful and largely good one. It may lead us to do things that are not the best, um, to intervene in places mm-hmm. we shouldn't intervene and so on, but as a, as a moral feeling, it's a very good one for, for us all. And focusing a bit on on shame, I found interesting that you speak about shame uh, as a moral commitment, and also you speak about shame as uh, reflex emotions, uh, which I I guess that it also implies that uh, reflex emotions have an impact on moral commitments and also on the other way around. So I was wondering if you could first help to make a difference between uh, shame as a reflex emotion and shame as a moral commitment, and also how do moral commitments and reflex emotions interact with each other? Well, I think all of these different types of emotions interact with each other. So the short-run emotions build up over time to influence our, our long-term commitments. Those long-term, long-term commitments form a kind of background to the short-run reactions. So we're, we're ashamed of certain things or afraid of certain things because of our our long-term commitments. Um, so it's always going back and forth. With In the case of shame, the, the reflex version of shame really is almost a, a kind of humiliation. It's, it's a more physical kind of intimidation. So um, even non-human species uh, have this um, reaction where if they're um, uh, confronted by, by somebody who's higher in the pecking order, they, they put their head down, they uh, sort of collapse their chest and put their shoulders down. It's a, it's a kind of uh, gesture of defeat, deflation, deference. Um, so it's a kind of uh, almost a humiliation. Whereas if uh, they are the top one in the pecking order, they put their head up, their shoulders back. Mm-hmm. It's a different kind of stance. So there is this very bodily expression of, of shame and pride at, at that level, and it can be quite immediate. Um, with humans, that's, uh, that happens. Uh, and I think uh, sort, of, sort of like torture, it is used very often by the powerful to humiliate, intimidate the less powerful. So uh, when you see Mm -hmm. videos of what happens to Palestinians who are trying to cross into Israel at the the border, uh, the petty humiliations that they undergo uh, at the hands of the defense forces, um, you can see that it's it's a matter of um, just degradation that will make them feel less, is designed at least to make them feel less than human to make them feel less powerful. Mm-hmm. So, so there, the, those are very direct physical forms of, of shame, but there are very elaborated moral forms. Uh, again, these might be like, uh, like we were talking about a minute ago, 
These might be um, forms of of shame for what our country has done in a war around the world. These might this might be shame for um, somebody we're only loosely associated with and what what they did. Uh, you know, where and and we can feel pride correspondingly for um, doing something good politically, or when our country does something good, uh, we can feel pride. You know, even in what are relatively trivial things. I shouldn't say that. Trivial things like the World Cup. Uh, you know, in sports, <laughs> you know, the, we feel we feel a lot of pride when our country wins, uh, and uh, some shame or at least disappointment when our country loses. Um, so there are all sorts of ways in which these sort of deeper uh, or broader, more abstract forms uh, come out in, in the immediate. So, so our, it's our solidarity with our country or with a country that allows us to cheer so much when uh, they score a goal in the, in the FIFA games. <laughs> And also, um, Something that I found interesting that you also speak about in the book and you just uh, mentioned now is that emotions, uh, I mean, the same emotion does not always uh, affect participation in politics in the same way, right? So like continuing with shame, you were speaking, we can feel uh, ashamed of ourselves, right? And that would uh, potentially prevent participation in uh, public actions. But then we can also feel ashamed about the behavior of our country, and that would encourage participation in politics. <laughs> so how, how is this complexity in which uh, we, we cannot really uh, say 100% which emotions affect uh, each type of participation? Yeah. Well, I would throw in a, th a third example, which is a lot of the efforts, uh, especially in the LGBTQ community, to transform shame into pride. Uh, this is sort of a classic um, form of uh, area of research, how, they, how, they, how they've done that over the years. And a lot of other groups do something similar, even speak about coming out and have pride parades. Um, so, yes, it is complicated. And I think that's part of the constant struggle. So this is what organizers do. This is what activists, uh, this is what uh, intellectuals do. They try to question sources of pride and sources of shame and, and change them. So um, th they can write about uh, why it's, uh, it's absurd for someone born into a lower caste through no fault of their own to feel shame over being in the lower caste. Uh, so the Dalit rights movement in India is about um, finding ancestors of a caste uh, who were warriors, who were uh, from loftier positions, loftier castes. Uh, it's about um, questioning uh, the form of Hinduism that uh, believes that your caste status reflects what you've done in past lives. Um, there are all sorts of ways to challenge the entire moral system that says um, you should be ashamed of who you are. Now, so this is a really different source of shame than doing something that uh, a particular action that you're ashamed of. Um, just, just being in a shameful category, you know, being gay, being a, a Dalit, Um, these, at least in today's world, in the modern world, are increasingly seen as inappropriate sources of shame. Again, it's partly the humanitarian, the cosmopolitanism that sees all humans as the same, trying to say, well, look, you know, just because you were born here in this village with this and your parents had this occupation, that's no reason to be ashamed. You're a human being like everybody else. So... It's a constant struggle. What, what is it appropriate to feel shame over? What is it inappropriate to feel shame over? And uh, certainly those categories of shame that are in your blood, that you're born to, um, to most of us, to, or to increasing numbers of us today, that is an inappropriate source of shame. There's still sources of shame in um, actions. We may do something that we ourselves are ashamed of, we think is wrong. Uh, and that prevents us from uh, participating. You know, when, you're, when you feel shame, you don't really want to be seen by other people. You don't want to go outdoors. You don't want to inter interact. You want to hide. 
And mm -hmm. in some cases, uh, to, to get those people to participate, you've got to convince them that um, you understand or that you forgive them, uh, that you want to reincorporate them into the group. Shame is a, a feeling of isolation from your group, that you're no longer worthy of mm -hmm. being part of them. And so overcoming that shame uh, involves showing that you are still part of the group. They do accept you. They don't, they don't feel badly about you. And then also continuing with this uh, complexity of understanding emotions and also moving uh, towards the end of the book, um, you also have an appendix, which I found that it could become actually a full book about how to make research about emotions, right? And I think that you're right, because many times it's... it's uh, very difficult even to differentiate emotions, right? I mean, you speak along the book about empathy, about sympathy, about compassion, about solidarity, which are very different, to, uh, are very difficult to to differentiate in many times. So how, how to research on emotions and what are your suggestions on doing that? Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's a funny thing. There's, there's some ways in which emotions are uh, extremely visible and very easy to see. And uh, you, you can read emotions in a brochure or a poster or hear them in a speech. Uh, you can see them in people's faces. And so to some extent, emotions are easier to observe than a lot of the things we talk about. Um, so you, it's hard to actually see a social movement. It's hard to see the state. It's hard to see a political opportunity structure. So we, a lot of things we talk about in sociology, we're really imagining. Uh, and yet it's true. Emotions are hard to observe, partly because there's so many of them. And we tend to have them in combinations and sequences that are very complicated. Um, however, I don't think we're to the point uh, yet, uh, yet that we... Um, it, I mean, well, let me put it differently. I think we can make progress simply by pointing to some of the basic emotions, some of the main emotions that people are feeling and acting on. And mm -hmm. later we can look at the combinations and sequences and so on. But simply by having a language to identify the main emotions or the obvious emotions, I think that's a start down the road toward toward action. And it turns out When you look at how people study emotions, uh, almost all the tools through which we study anything else can be applied to emotions, especially the methods that we use to study culture, because culture, cultural meanings have very much the same problem. I mean, I think that feeling, thinking is a form of culture, is part of our culture, but um, we, we have the same problems of do we interview people to hear what they say? Do we look at what they have written? Uh, do we observe them from the outside to try to understand their meanings? Do we, do we have depth interviews or do we have surveys with very specific questions? Um, all of these are problems to get at how people understand the world, their attitudes. Uh, survey research is really about getting inside people's minds in some way. All of those things can also be used to get at their emotions. We can ask them about their emotions. We can observe them. Um, I think with, with emotions, uh, one of the best methods is actually to participate ourselves so that we feel a lot of the same emotions. There are limits to that. There are limits to what groups mm -hmm. you can participate in and, and feel that kind of empathy with. But um, virtually any kind of, of method can be used to, to study emotions. Uh, That's not to say that it's easy. Uh, it's hard to study emotions, um, partly because of the realism involved there. It's realistic to understand action through emotions. But the more realistic we get, the more complicated it gets. The less realistic we get, the more we can step back and have abstract theories that don't have much uh, connection to the real world, don't have much evidence for them at all. It's always easy mm -hmm. to spin Uh, very simple-minded theories about uh, social life, but we don't understand much through them. Uh, they're kind of fun. They're kind of exciting. But if we really want to figure out what's going on in a setting, in an interaction, in a social movement, 
we've got to get down to this nitty gritty level and have the patience to observe, to ask. Mm -hmm. One of the best ways to do it is through multiple methods. Uh, We observe in some ways, we read Mm -hmm. things, we get subjects to write diaries for us. And then we ask them about these things to test how we are understanding them and to see if they have the same understanding. So it's always good to go back and forth among several different kinds of methods, I think. And that's especially true with the study of emotions. So a good example of um, how emotions lead to action, uh, I think is uh, another appendix of your book, uh, in which I have uh, the sense uh, that a certain indignation, I, I could say, with the victory of, uh, of Donald Trump led you to make some kind of uh, last-minute changes uh, to the book. So I was wondering if you could um, elaborate a bit on how we can make sense of the victory of Trump based on your framework of emotions and also whether it's everything about irrationality and only emotions or... You- you have something else uh, to, to say based on, uh, on the book and uh, the conversation we had so far. Good, sure. Yes, I, I had pretty much finished the book when he was elected, or at least I had a good draft of it. Um, you know, having spent 20 years writing about emotions, arguing that, well, emotions do not make people irrational in politics. Uh, Donald Trump came along, and uh, it's tempting to read him and his popularity as basically he stirred up all of these emotions that made people vote for what is a clearly uh, deranged uh, president of the United States. Um, However, I don't think it's as simple as that, and I think uh, it helps remind us that everybody out there is driven by a combination of thoughts and claims about the world, beliefs about the world, as well as feelings about the world. So uh, I may disagree with Trump supporters, uh, but I disagree with their beliefs and their feelings, uh, which are so closely intertwined. So, um, They believe that the U.S. federal government is um, is arrogant. Um, I might agree with that, actually. Uh, They think that uh, federal officials and scientists are trying to fool us all. I don't really agree with that. Um, But I don't necessarily share their hatred of federal bureaucrats or federal politicians. They believe, a lot of them, that um, God is going to come and save us, and uh, we don't really need to worry about the environment because uh, the true believers are going to be raptured up to a better place. Um, I don't share that belief either, but I can understand how if you did believe that, uh, you might care less about saving this world. So they have a, a, a lot of feeling, thinking processes. They have a lot of moral commitments. They have a lot of affective commitments who they trust and don't trust. Um, I don't share very many of them. Um, I I find it hard to believe that anyone would trust what Donald Trump says, but uh, they do. There's something about his presentation and background and what he looks like that, um, that some American voters trust. Uh, so, but I think the point is that if we're going to understand voters, we can't think that people f- voted for Trump because they were simply mistaken. This is a, a standard um, uh, an- analysis on the left in the United States mm-hmm. that people are just mistaken about their material interests and vote against their material interests out of emotions. But This is a kind of um, pejorative, dismissive view of these, uh, what what we call the middle American, right-wing, Republican Trump supporters. Um, They don't care so much about their their purely financial, material interests. They care a lot about ideal interests. Mm -hmm. They care a lot about um, symbols of America, fairly superficial in my opinion, 
symbols of American pride. Uh, they are afraid of immigrants. A lot of them live in places where there are not a lot of immigrants. Unlike me living in New York, there are a lot of immigrants there. Uh, they, I, I can see that they're not so scary and mostly they want to work hard and uh, get ahead. And uh, That seems fine to me. But a lot of people don't, don't know a single immigrant. A lot of Trump voters don't know any African-Americans, uh, but they are afraid of them in some way. So I think to understand what motivates people, what drives people in politics, we really have to look for a kind of emotional logic and emotional package to how they feel and what they do. So the patterns of trust and mistrust, love and, and hate, uh, those are what really help us predict how people are going to vote. And the, the Trump package is, it turned out to be compelling to a fair number of people. Although, uh, you'll forgive me one observation only 26% of eligible voters in the U.S. actually voted for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. But that 26%, you know, and it's, a, you know, so call it a third of American voters, have these um, fundamentalist, Protestant, anti-Washington views that he tapped into very directly. It's partly a rural Um, urban divide. It's partly on education. It's partly a local versus cosmopolitan. But uh, there's an emotional logic to Trump supporters that we can't simply dismiss as irrational, mistaken in some way. And then just uh, closing the interview with uh, two questions that that we make to all of our guests here. Um, I was wondering, after this uh, very interesting book, what you're working on right now? Okay. Yeah, I have another book uh, in the works that is about characters uh, in the traditional literary sense of heroes and villains and victims and that odd little um, mean-spirited character we call minions. Um, and I'm writing this with a couple uh, colleagues, uh, sort of how characters play a role in political rhetoric and political imagery. So part of it is still about the emotions that characters uh, carry for us, because, you know, when we define somebody as a hero, part of that very definition of a hero is somebody we admire or somebody we want to follow. The very definition of a victim is somebody or something we want to pity. So um, the emotions are built into the characters. It's not, they're not simply cognitive creations. Mm-hmm. So um, this is really about how in politics in general, these characters are constructed, what kind of work goes into them. And a lot of it is about the imagery because characters are constructed in a quick caricature, a quick drawing, they're constructed in movies, they're constructed um, through color and gesture and um, stance and facial expression as much as through as they're constructed through words. So um, this is a book that's uh, fairly far along and should be out in a year or two. Mm, well, so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to read it and maybe to, to interview you again when, once it's... Uh... It's uh, finished. And then uh, as the last question, um, so which, which new books are, are, have you been reading lately? Do you have any, any suggestion for our listeners about which, which books the, they should uh, be looking forward to? Uh, well, embarrassingly, I haven't been reading many sociology books. Uh, I, I have been reading a very interesting book that is relevant to this, uh, that the historian R.I. Moore British historian who has written about heresy uh, in the past and wrote a very good book called The Rise of a Persecuting Society about late medieval Europe, uh, has written another history of of heresy that I've been reading and enjoying very much. And it's really about how uh, the the church primarily, but also through through its political alliances, developed this pattern or this, um, this technique of persecuting heretics, uh, not just the leaders of heresies, but their followers as well, and how they came to learn to interrogate them and not just make them change their minds, but really put them to death for believing the wrong things. 
uh, in many cases, very subtle wrong things about the Trinity and three gods versus one God and, and uh, what happens during the mass and does the, does the host really become the body of Christ or not? They're very subtle things and people were burned at the stake for, for giving the wrong answers and how this happened in the 11th and 12th centuries. It's a, it's a kind of a obscure topic, but I, I think very relevant for the modern world. Oh, indeed, indeed. So, yeah, thank you very much for, for your time. Uh, so today we've been talking to Professor James Jasper about his book, The Motions of Protest, which has been recently published by the University of Chicago Press. So, Jim, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> it was a pleasure. 